Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I am interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is futurist Rohit Bhargava. Rohit is the number one Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author of nine books and co-author of the recently released book, The Future Normal. In our conversation, Rohit paints a picture of life in 2053. We talk about the growing desire for analog experiences that deepen human connection, innovative ways for ending loneliness, the future of virtual relationships, and how we will manage our authentic selves in a multiversal world. Rohit also talks about the future of space exploration. We end our conversation by talking about some of the things that we're doing today that the people of 2073 will look back at in disbelief. Rohit, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation as well. I just read The Future Normal, so you've filled me with all sorts of ideas from this book <laughs> about what the future is going to look like. And so we'll just start out. As you know, I'm talking to 12 futurists and forward-thinking leaders about what life is going to be like in 2053 or in 2073. So my first question to you is, why don't you paint a picture for what life is going to be like in 2053? You can focus on a particular domain or you can focus on life in general. I think that one thing that's really capturing my imagination is that we hear a lot about how things that are analog have been evolving to digital. And a common picture of the future is that everything's going to be digital. And I actually think in that span of time, 30 years from now, it's going to be much more common for us to choose between a digital or analog version of something based on what we prioritize. So some things we will want to be entirely digital, we will we'll want to be virtual, we'll want to be automated. And some things we'll actually want to interact with a person. We'll be want to be there in person. We'll want to hold something physical. And you're already seeing some signs of that today. Like people are going back to listening to music on record players, even though we have digital music. And it's not because they can't afford it or because of anything other than they want that experience. And I think that that is going to be super pervasive in the future on every level when it goes to driving and like self-driving versus manual driving, when it goes to the digital experiences we have or like entertainment. I mean, across every sector, that is a macro thing that I'm really interested to see how it plays out. Hopefully I'll be around then. I'll be able to see it. Yeah. Why would people lean toward the analog experience? What's the, what, 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 what are the drivers there? Human connection is probably the primary driver. I mean, we're in a time right now when the Surgeon General in the U.S. just declared loneliness to be an epidemic. Uh, and loneliness, in essence, is a lack of human, deep human connection with one another. And I think that sometimes the more digitized something gets, the less human connection we feel to it. And so the appeal of analog is we regain that human connection. Well, that's that's really great because that was one of the chapters in your book that I put a star next to. I wanted to go back to that one over and over again. And there are some communities that you identified maybe in Denmark or Sweden or, or places like that, where they're kind of reimagining how people live. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what that looks like now and how you could see that working in the future. Yeah. What you're referencing is so interesting because, you know, for people who haven't seen the book, the format of it is that there's 30 trends. So each chapter is a different trend. And there were sort of let's call them sister trends. They were one chapter after another. And the one you're referring to was a chapter we called Ending Loneliness. 
And it was all about how intergenerational living is a potential solution where you put people from an older generation living side by side in the same building with people from a younger generation. And there's several communities coming up around that. The other chapter, though, that was a companion to that literally was a chapter we called virtual companionship. And so right there, you're seeing this duality of, in one sense, you're solving or ending loneliness, theoretically, by putting people together with people. And in another, you're combating loneliness by having virtual relationships and virtual companions, sometimes with real people over long distances and sometimes with virtual machines. And I think that is what we're going to expect much more in the future. It's not going to be the future's only this or only that. It's going to be both. Are those virtual relationships, and I'm assuming that these are not just virtual relationships between people, but they can be a virtual relationship with a bot or some sort of AI. Are these types of relationships enduring, like the relationship we might have with a best friend, somebody we have coffee with once a week or something like that? It's too early to know, but I think that the the danger and the potential of it is that it could be. And the danger of that is pretty obvious. I mean, you fall in love with a technology that someone could choose to turn off or take away at some point in the future. And that's literally what happened when you look at people falling into in relationships, not necessarily like one-on-one -on -one relationships, but familial relationships with something like Jibo, which was a robot technology that was in the home and people loved their Jibo bot. And then the company went basically out of business and they stopped supporting it. And all these people felt like they'd lost a pet. Now, the emotional feeling of that was, was the same as that. And so I do think that people are going to form those types of relationships. And I think that the challenge is going to be similar, not the same, but similar to the challenge that I think all of us might have with alcohol or gambling, which is these things can be fun, but if you become addicted and it consumes your life, it's no longer fun. And I think that that is something that's going to be increasingly something we have to deal with in the future when it comes to being addicted to virtual relationships. I mean, I think that's going to be a thing. There's a, a statistic in the book that 73% of Gen Z report that they're sometimes or always feeling alone. And then I think later in the book, you talk about how uh, younger generations feel their authentic self online, which was really interesting to me. And that kind of makes me think about what the metaverse might look like and that the metaverse is going to be a place where people seek out and seek out relationships and try to fill this void of, of loneliness. And I wonder how you think of the metaverse or similar types of, you know, evolutions of social media and connections in a virtual world evolving over the next 10, 20 and 30 years. I, in that span of time, I don't see a true metaverse in the sense that we see it in science fiction, where you put on a headset and you sit on your couch for 18 hours a day and basically you're living your life online without going anywhere. I don't see that being reality, at least in the next 30 years. Instead, I think that what's going to happen and what we wrote about in the book is this idea that you're going to have what we termed a multiversal identity. And that we weren't really talking about the multiverse there. We sort of intentionally used that term, but tried to broaden it because I think what's already happening and what will continue to happen is we will decide to be a version of ourselves on different platforms based on what those platforms are. 
So right now you might have a version of yourself on LinkedIn. You might have a different version of yourself on Instagram in terms of what you choose to share. You might have a different, hopefully a different profile on Tinder. If you're on Tinder to try and date people, like these are versions of ourselves. They're not our whole selves. They're just a version that we choose to share on the platform based on what the platform is. Well, that seems really confusing. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of, of being able to manage that and, and be authentic. Right. Because I think authenticity is one of the things that we crave from people in our relationships. And so, you know, if I have this version of myself in this digital world and then a version of myself at work and in my personal relationships where I'm spending time, how do we manage that and not really kind of lose it? I think to some degree, we as humans have always done that. I mean, there's a very widely known term in the world of diversity and inclusion called code switching. And code switching is the idea that when you're surrounded by people from one group or one type of group, you speak in a certain way, you act in a certain way. And when you're in a different group, you switch. Uh, and it's very common among people who come from different minority backgrounds or who have intersectional backgrounds to do that. One modern example for me might be when I was living in Australia and I was surrounded by my Australian friends, I started having a bit of an Australian accent in the way that I would speak to them because I was just trying to be understood. So the first thing I removed from my language when I came from America was I no, no longer said dollar, I said dollar. And that was just one simple word, right? But I changed it because I didn't, first of all, I didn't want to get fun, made fun of as an American. Uh, but second of all, I mean, they use dollars also. And so it just helped me fit in a little bit more. And so, you know, it sounds like, oh, we're going to have to manage all these identities and do all this thing. But to some degree, like we've always done that. It just becomes intentional to do it online now. So it won't be as stressful as I'm thinking. Well, that's, that's good. I, I do know that, you know, friends of mine who have had to mask their identity, let's say if somebody's gay and, and, but they, but they wouldn't show up to work that way. They've had very difficult times managing that, whereas in their social life, no, it, it's no problem. And so, yeah, there, there are code switching there as you're describing, but I know that it was quite stressful for some of my friends to kind of manage those dual identities you know, between work. It really can be because, yeah, I mean, if you feel like you have to hide your core identity, that is stressful. And that's really what you're talking about. If I have to intentionally not share a shirtless selfie on LinkedIn, that's not really stressful. That's just a choice. Anything else you want to touch on related to 2053 and how we're going to be living life then? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question because it, it takes me into a space where I'm really guessing. And as a futurist or somebody who does this type of work, I don't like guessing. I, my level of comfort with guessing is probably far lower than many other people who call themselves futurists, because that's not really what I would choose to write about. I mean, what I write about is something that I see happening right now. And my prediction, quote unquote, for the future is that that's going to happen more and more frequently. And typically the time frame that I'm looking at and writing about is the next two or three years. That's what I focus on, uh, because I think that when you know what's going to be happening three years from now, you can do a lot of things. You can make a shift in your career. You can think about your business strategically. Knowing or thinking you know what's going to happen in 2053, I don't really know what I'd do differently today, right? I mean, maybe there are some things like I might try and, and think about that are long-term that way, but it's much more difficult. I'll lob a softball to you and, and let's see where you put it into play. <laughs> I've been thinking about this one a lot lately and it's 
maybe it's not obvious for some people, but probably very obvious for you. And that's what's happening in space. And I really like to look back at history to kind of look for reference points. And so when I think about space, I'm, I'm looking back to flight. And in 1919, there was the first transatlantic flight. It was two men. They flew from St. John's in Newfoundland all the way to Ireland. It was 1,800 miles. That was the first time. And it wasn't until 1927 that somebody soloed. That was Lindbergh. And then 100 years later, in, in 2019, there were 36 million passenger seats that made that trip. So in the course of a century, we went from the first transatlantic flight all the way to 36 million you know, passenger seats making that journey safely. So I'm thinking that with space, we're in this very, very nascent stage of the first transatlantic flight with SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and these different companies going up there. And I, I wonder if if this is kind of a non-obvious trend that you've been following and that you would kind of say, yes, this, these are the very early seeds that are being planted. We don't know exactly where it's going to go, but it's going to go somewhere. I mean, I spend, I do spend quite a bit of time thinking about and, and watching what's happening in space. And, and especially because it is a very futuristic topic. I, I love space personally. I've done several events with let's call them space people, you know, that work at NASA and some of the other independent groups. Like I've been in events with, with them hearing about and talking about the future. What I think is the biggest opportunity there though, is, is not what a lot of people think. So in your example, right, people are, are going to space because they want to experience that. And it's sort of the space tourism idea, which is sexy, but I don't think that's ever going to be as mainstream as people flying to see one another in different places because it's only ever going to be go and see space and, and come back until we eventually settle. But before that, I think the big opportunity, and this is where the dollars are really, and this is where dollars are, and this is where people are going to pursue it, is space mining, which is there are minerals and materials out in space. And as we slowly run out of things that we need here to make the things that we need, we're going to turn to space. And as soon as it becomes more economical to send a machine to some sort of body in space, whether it's a planet or a moon or a meteoroid or a asteroid or whatever, mine some sort of mineral and bring it back to Earth. That is going to be the major, major market. And that's going to cons completely consume like space tourism or any of the other things that are more kind of nice to have but also have a lot more risk associated with them, right? To bring people safely there and back versus sending a robot to dig up some soil or some rocks and bringing those back is a different idea. That's interesting. And I think about, okay, well, where are the historical comparisons? Of course, you know, hundreds of years ago, people sailed from Europe to the new world, very, very dangerous. And they were exploring and they were looking for minerals and riches and spices and, you know, all sorts of different things. And and if you think about that as the historical comparison, what you're saying is it makes complete sense. Well, it also reveals some potential downfalls of that, right? Because we may end up exploiting these places and doing some very negative things environmentally. So, I mean, it is a great historical parallel. Very often people are looking at historical figures and saying, oh my gosh, they were, they were terrible and they shouldn't have been doing what they're doing. And they're being assessed 
on the mores and social conventions of today. So what will the people of 2073, we're looking 50 years out, what will people of 2073 look back at what we're doing today and just shake their heads at in disbelief, can't believe they're, you know, well, whatever practices you have in mind. I mean, the the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is single-use products and single-use packaging. I mean, already it is astounding if someone were to be in their home and they're drinking water from a plastic bottle and throwing it away when they have running water at home. I mean, that already is is crazy to even think about. And yet people do that. And I think 50 years from now, the people of the future will look back and see how many things we packaged in such a way that was just so wildly wasteful. I mean, think about the last package that you got delivered at home and how much packaging there was around it, as opposed to just having it shipped in in less packaging. Think about the last product that you bought that had one of those impenetrable plastic packaging things that you couldn't open, even though you had like three pairs of scissors and, and a pair of knives, in addition to all the plastic bottles and all of those sorts of things. I mean, I think that right now, there are already people who are creating ways to do what's called waste-free packaging. We had an entire chapter about it in the book. And the fact that those are not catching on and that everyone's not using those, to me, is crazy. And I think 50 years from now, people will look back and say, I, I don't understand. I just don't. Why are our regulators not making a, a greater effort on this? Because I agree with you. This is, this is one of the things that's so obvious to me that we are doing wrong right now, but it, they're so ubiquitous everywhere you look. It, you know, you go to the grocery store, single-use packaging, that, it, and it doesn't need to be. It, it, I just wonder, why are we not regulating? We outlawed the plastic bag in the grocery store. Wow, you know, win run for that. But, or we're charging five cents, but that's just, it, it's such a minor act compared to what needs to be done. I think one of the major, I mean, this is me putting on my marketing and communications and persuasion hat, right? So I've spent a long time working in the marketing industry. And I think that the reason why anything doesn't get done in this sense is because there are a lot of communicators in the world who understand deeply the technique of distraction. And so anytime anything becomes a priority, they will talk about how something else should also be a priority. And they'll distract the people who should be focused on making that change and they'll shift the public attention and then nothing gets done. And you can literally look at anything. You can look at environmental controls. You can look at gun control. You can look at any of these topics and you will see a clear pattern of someone making some sort of big deal. Let's say there's a big tragic school shooting and everyone's calling for something. And then they change the story and the story is no longer that it's too easy to access guns. The story is, why don't teachers have guns so that they can protect the students? And there's your distraction. And now all of a sudden, the cycle changes and no one does anything. So I think that the people who are able to impact that change, they have to be able to focus on what that change should be. And, and that just hasn't happened. When I'm thinking about the future, I often think about when plastics were created, an incredible invention, right? Save lots of lives, have, have made life better in many, many ways. But people should have known that these things are not biodegrading. 
and that we need a plan to blitz. 50 years ago, we should have known this, right? And and we should have been simultaneously creating a, a plan for what we're going to do with these things. How can we reuse them? Whatever. But we didn't. We just threw them away. So I think about what are the plastics of today? There's a there's there's a few. So I mean, first of all, if you look at the history of of, of plastic, when they first started manufacturing plastic, it was actually using byproducts, waste from factories, and they turned it into plastic. So it actually, initially, people thought it was great for the environment because they were taking something that was previously thrown away and reusing it and making it into plastic. So, you know, ironically, now with the long term, like we understand it better, right? Yeah. But I think today, infrastructure is the new plastic. And what I mean by that is the way we're designing our cities, our towns, everything from bridges to buildings to roads is being done with not as future leaning technology as it could be and not as future thinking as it could be. And as soon as you build a road or a bridge, how long is that going to stick around for? Right. And there's famous examples, again, from the world of, of diversity of, of designs of cities that were intentionally created in a way to keep segregation in place. And so there was bridges built in certain cities where the bridge was the bridge was too low and therefore buses couldn't actually go under it. And so you couldn't get people who were using buses off to one area of the town. And so you basically prevented poor people from going to a certain area. And I think that when you systematize those types of things and they can't change for 50 years because you're not going to rebuild the bridge until it's really falling apart. I mean, that's, that's the new plastic <laughs> that doesn't go away. It's not like you can shift it with one legislative cycle and have a new president come in or have a new whomever come in and, and fix it because these things are fixed. So infrastructure is the new plastic. Just in general, I think we are very inefficient with what we produce and this idea of maybe 8 billion people being too many. I don't necessarily buy into that. I think we can be a lot more effective with what we have to serve the needs of the 8 billion people. And uh, I had another conversation with somebody else and she was kind of challenging me on that. And, and I started to think about it. I think we waste about 40% of the food in this country. So, you know, if, if we could optimize that better, then we can solve hunger. We probably, many of us overeat. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of optimization, which I think kind of goes toward your your idea of of infrastructure and also you know i read recently that there you know in terms of commercial real estate 26 empty empire state buildings of of real estate in new york city okay well we can solve the homeless issue too yeah we just need to we just need to reimagine the resources that we have the infrastructure that we have and allocated in a way that benefits the owners, but also benefits the rest of society. Yeah, I do think, I mean, any expert in, in demography that you talk to will tell you that, that population growth is going to hit a point where it's no longer growing. And then we're actually going to be contracting. And the real challenge, if you want to focus on challenges, is not that we have too many people, it's that people are living longer and longer. And so we need to figure out what does that mean? if people continue to retire around the age of 70 or 75 or whatever the age is, and then they live for another 50 years, 
what does that mean? What does that mean for our culture? What does that mean for what we need to make available? What does that mean for healthcare? That's the big question. It's not, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's not how do we feed everyone because we already grow enough food to feed everyone. I mean, we need to continue to do that and we need to allocate it to people because there's definitely, I mean, there's obviously people who are starving and that shouldn't be the case. But dealing with people who are aging and the aging process itself, I mean, that's the major challenge of humanity for the future. I've been thinking about that particular point for a long time, for a couple decades, because we love the benefits that benefit us, <laughs> like, like the extension <laughs> of life. Really, we, we've extended life for many, many people by probably two decades. You know, when I was a kid, old was 70. And now it's kind of 90 for me. You know, I, I mean, I know people who are in their 80s who are just living vibrant lives and still working. But we don't like the consequences of that, which means we can't retire at 59 or 62 or 65. And what we just saw in France, well, we're recording this May 19th, the, the protests in France late April and, and earlier this month with just trying to raise the the benefits age for retire or the retirement age by two years, people were just going bananas. Like, no, they, they don't want that. And you can't have both, right? You, you can't have a society that's going to function having people live to a hundred or beyond and not work for, you know, beyond 60 years old. Yeah. I mean, financially you can't, but also just emotionally and culturally, right? Because it's guaranteed. I mean, the longer you live, the more people in your life who you love will pass away in your lifetime. I mean, that's just mathematically true. And so we're going to have to find ways of, of dealing with that. And people are going to have to build new communities and, and new ways of thinking and, and make new friendships. I mean, everyone knows that gets harder as you get older. Rohit, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, there's we could talk about the future for a long, long time. I mean, I think one of the things that stands out for people oftentimes when they when they read the future normal and when they hear some of the ideas or they hear me speak about it on stage is that it is a very optimistic view of the future mine and henry's take and they're often surprised by that because the common thing for futurists to do is give you scenarios they love the word scenarios we don't really use it but like futurists love scenarios and when they paint the picture of the scenario, they say, here's the positive outcome. Here's what it could be. And here's the negative one. And they sort of present it as if it's a 50-50 chance. Like 50%, everything goes to crap and the robots take us out. 50%, it's okay. And I don't like those odds. Like that's not, that's not the odds that I want for the future. And so what we tried to do in this book and what I try and do when I speak about this is I try and share the examples of people and organizations and countries who are doing these amazing future forward things right now. Because I believe that if we share those stories more frequently, and if we have more awareness amongst people of them, then we can make those positive changes and we can change the odds so that the future is actually in fact better. And so what we wrote about was not based on hope or based on closing our eyes to the negative things, the negative potentials that could happen. It was based on reality of real things that are happening that I think we should know about and support and celebrate. And that's what the book tries to do. Yeah, that's that's important to to keep in mind. And when I read something new about a new technology or a new social trend, mainly technology, 
I tend to gravitate toward, oh, this is the end of humanity. And then five minutes later, I'm like, oh, but what if it's used in this way? Or what if we choose to use it this way? And then I'm like, yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> this, this will be good. So I kind of like <laughs> deviate toward the negative and then I and I swing back toward the more optimistic, positive way of of viewing things. And that's that's generally how, you know, when I read your book, fantastic book, 30 chapters, highly relevant to to life. And, you know, sometimes I was just like gripped with fear and then I'm like, oh I, yeah. <laughs> just contemplate how how these things can be used for solving real problems that people have. Yeah, I mean, we have. I have this. I have this experience too. And and education was one huge sector that a lot of people were worried about. And as we're recording this, the the frenzy around AI and ChatGPT and students using it to write their essays for them. I mean, all of those things are are really in the news and uh, and a big concern for parents and teachers and and just anyone who's worried about like what are our kids going to learn in the future. And then last week, I watched the TED Talk from Sal Khan, who founded the Khan Academy. And he, the topic of his TED Talk was how AI can save education. And he gave all these examples of how AI could be used as a personal tutor to actually help students learn faster and help teachers be more efficient and effective with teaching. And that gave me hope, you know. And so the nice thing is that in the process of writing a book like this and studying the future, you will always find a doomsday scenario and then you'll pretty quickly find someone who's going to fix it, no matter what the challenge is. And that's the beautiful thing about spending enough time seeking out these types of stories that you find reasons to hope. You don't just hope because you hope or because you're an optimistic person. You find reasons because you find someone who's reinventing glitter so that it's not just microplastic that we're throwing up in the air on a party. It's biodegradable. And now there's biodegradable glitter. Like, you know, so it helps me a lot when I think about these examples to break down the potential impact that I might have as a writer and a communicator, but also just as a consumer and a parent to make small choices that could change the way that the world exists in the future, like buying biodegradable glitter. Biodegradable glitter is the perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> Rohit, where can people learn more about you? So you can just go to nonobvious.com and you can find out all about my platform and why I believe non-obvious thinking can change the world and how to be a non-obvious thinker. And I do a weekly newsletter all about the most non-obvious ideas of the week. And so you can subscribe to that from there as well. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week when I interview futurist, professor, and author Brian David Johnson, who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius. <laughs>